some listeners might think I'm obsessed with climate change. So that's one thing I guess is, yep, I'm obsessed and I'm obsessed because I can't turn away. Uh, so find the thing you can't turn away from and make it yours. Bring your own collection of characteristics to it. That was Jim Poyser, Executive Director of Earth Charter Indiana. We'll hear more from Jim on the Hopeful Hoosier podcast, episode 14. I'm your Hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. My day job is to support people's professional development and growth as a board-certified executive coach. I routinely help executives and entrepreneurs become more effective leaders, communicators, change agents, and more. If we work together long enough and develop enough mutual trust, our conversations often shift to personal growth. Successful achievers seem to reach a dissatisfying and disenchanting crisis point in their careers and lives. They either are confronted by an issue that they cannot escape, or they encounter a question that forever changes the trajectory of their lives. Our world is full of big issues and challenging questions. Both give us an opportunity to discover our life's purpose. Purpose is the reason you're here. Purpose uses all of who you are and what you do best in a satisfying way that gives your life meaning and a tremendous sense of well-being. When you encounter your purpose, you just know it in your heart of hearts. When you don't know what your purpose is, you'll know that too. People describe it as a longing in your soul or an internal itch that nothing seems to be able to scratch. Amazing experiences, awards, and great achievements leave you unfulfilled and asking, is this all there is to life? If you think of life as an epic play that you write as you kind of live life one day at a time, what do you think you would give the title of your life's epic journey so far? Mine seems to be Sparking Hope, the life of a fired-up hopeful Hoosier. When I'm coaching and creating an episode of this podcast, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm on purpose. This is what I'm made to do. Each episode hopefully challenges you with an example of another Hoosier just like you, who's either accepted the challenge of taking on a worthy issue or is seeking an answer to a life-changing question. Every one of my guests is living life on purpose, and you can too. In this episode, the hero of our story is writer and playwright Jim Poyser who in his 50s was confronted by both an issue and a question that forever changed his life's journey and has him living his life on purpose. Jim's issue turned out to be the environment and climate change, but this really isn't a story about climate change. It's one Hoosier's epic journey to discovering his purpose. Have a seat with Jim and I. We're at White Pine Wilderness Academy in Rocky Ripple, Indiana. It's August 2019. We'll explore, can a simple question really change everything for someone who's already successful? Tell us about where we are and, and where we're recording today. Yeah, we're, we're not at my office today because I, don't, I do have an office, but I'm never there. In my work at Earth Charter Indiana, um, I'm really out and about all the time. So we have a lot of great partners that do have an actual setting that's interesting. And one of them is White Pine Wilderness Academy. And and, and so we're sitting here because it would be just so boring to sit at my office around a table. (laughs) Tell me about what's the mission of White Pines. Um, White Pine is a wilderness academy teaching Aboriginal technology, primitive skills, and nature connection to multiple generations. 
their work with kids really dovetails with our work with kids, but they also have adult classes. And they do a lot of things like foraging classes, uh, plant identification, animal tracking, animal gate study, fire by friction. You make your entire fire, fire bow drill set up and all sorts of, all sorts of, of, of classes that they, that they uh, offer to the community. And what's interesting is we're not out in the middle of Indiana's farmland. We're in the middle of the town of Rocky Ripple, Indiana. <laughs> and Rocky Ripple is very special. I live here, actually. And, and Rocky Ripple is surrounded by the White River, the canal, and then uh, the, a bit of the Butler uh, soccer field and, and lacrosse and, and, and uh, softball field. So it's really kind of an island in, in Indianapolis. Just simply kind of walk me through your autobiography up to this point. Sure. Born and raised in South Bend, Indiana. Then uh, went to IU in Bloomington. That would have been 76 to 80. And toward the end of that college career, I had a major in uh, English and in telecommunications. I saw an ad in the paper, the local paper, calling for plays for a brand new theater company that had emerged called the Bloomington Playwrights Project. That was like in 1979. And I'd been writing a lot of fiction up to that point. It really, since I was eight or nine years old, I was writing fiction. And I thought, well, I'll try that. So I wrote this play, sent it to the Bloomington Playwrights Project, and they picked it to be their first staged production. So having written a lot of fiction over the years and poetry and whatnot, to be able to see my concepts and words on stage and get an immediate reaction from an audience was revelatory. I was so excited. It was a blessing and a curse, as they say, because from there on I was, I was hooked on writing plays. Uh, when I graduated from... IU, I decided to stick around and help the Bloomington Playwrights Project come into fuller being. I was the head literary manager and the dramaturg for the company. R wrote and produced about 30 plays over the course of the next six or seven years. From there, I got somehow a producer from Orion in Los Angeles uh, found a story that I'd written, and she encouraged me to write screenplays and sort of gave me a tutorial on that over the next couple of years. So I was kind of off and running with screenplay writing for the next 10 or more years. And then toward the tail end of that, so by the late 1990s, well, bef early... Before you go, what, what, yeah. would, what would maybe a listener recognize that something that you wrote that was produced for Orion? Oh, nothing at all. Okay. That's the... That's the curse part of my story. <laughs> I said blessing and a curse. So really, when, you, when Jim looks at his life, which he's doing now, thanks to you, Andy, <laughs> I look at a trajectory of about age eight to age 50, identifying primarily as a writer, despite the complete lack of publication or production credits. <laughs> okay. And this all becomes important and ironic in this next stage of my life. But uh, I, you know, I had a couple of screenplays optioned. I had a couple of meetings in L.A. that were really exciting. You know, was told I was going to be a very successful screenwriter. 
and all this stuff, and really spent a number of years where, where I thought, uh, boy, that phone's going to ring, and I'm going to be off and running. I'm going to be moving to L.A. But I was kind of stuck in Indianapolis, uh, family, you know, wife, kids. And I also, in the 90s, got a job that was as confluent with my love of words as I could possibly find, which in the beginning was working for the Bloomington Voice, an alternative news weekly in Bloomington, and then a subsequent literary magazine we produced about six issues of called Breeze. This was in the middle 1990s. Then about that time as well, I became arts editor for Nouveau. In fact, I was arts editor for both the Bloomington Voice and Nouveau simultaneously dividing my time between two cities, two markets, two arts communities. That is the very definition of insanity. Fortunately, Nouveau offered me a full-time position there as arts editor. And then after a couple of years, I became managing editor. So that would have been the year 2000 until I quit in, the, in 2013. Kind of what happened to me along the way was that was my career path. But I suddenly started to recognize that the climate crisis was already happening worldwide. And we weren't hearing about it in Indiana because nobody was talking about it in Indiana. By about 2005, 2006, I was the managing editor, so I was managing to grapple with all these issues of less revenue and, and how are we going to keep up our great tradition of, of investigative news, arts, music, storytelling. But I, got, I just got hooked on this recognition that the climate crisis was up and running. And in fact, people had known about this for 30 to 40 years. In fact, every country on planet Earth was grappling with this, except for a few key English-speaking countries, Great Britain, Australia, and the United States, who were actively involved in issuing propaganda about the issue and denying the, the, the climate science as such. So getting more and more comfortable with websites and the power of websites, I connected with a college friend, Michael Jensen, on creating a comedic approach to looking at this issue. And, and, and Michael's a, a, a computer programmer. He's brilliant. He, too, is getting to the point where it's like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? You know, climate change is happening. So we, we got obsessed with this. We created probably three or four iterations of a website that would be a whole show in itself. We ended up with one called Apocadox, which we would grab the daily feed of bad news and post it and then make a joke. And we had pictures of ourselves, goofy pictures. It was almost like a, a web vaudeville team where we would look at this horrible news and sometimes hopeful news as well. And we would make a funny face or whatever and do a quip. We did that for a series of years, but that's really what drove home the crisis to me, is that we were capturing um, credible journalism and scientific reports from around the world that were much more sophisticated about the crisis itself and what was happening. Because in the middle 2000s, living in Indiana, no elected official was talking about it that I recall. It was not in the paper. It was not on the local radio station. And, and frankly, I don't think NPR or you know, any of the other national feeds were talking about it that much at that time either. So my, 
my awakening really was, uh, I think it was 2007 or 2008, in the midst of doing this humor website, there was a story on how the North Pole was circumnavigable. And the Arctic continues to be the canary in the ultimate coal mine of all time, right? And the, the North Pole was circumnavigable for the first time in recorded history. And that, in fact, melting had happened 30 to 40 years ahead of scientific predictions. And I remember breaking down. I remember weeping over that because I got a glimpse into the, into the vast scale of destruction that humans had unintentionally wrought upon our atmosphere, and that we were warming the planet to the point where the Arctic was melting and the ice was disappearing, and one could navigate around the North Pole in a way that shocked scientists at the time. And that, that was really my turning point of going, this is not funny, though I continue to use humor in my work, this is not funny. Uh, this is deadly serious. In fact, this is the most deadly serious subject that humans have ever had to face. So that was, you know, a dozen years ago. Jim, you have this breakdown moment with your realization that the North Pole is now circumnavigable. What does somebody do with that? How old were you when that happened? And, and what do you do with that? Now, I was in my late... 40s when that would have happened again is still self-identifying as a writer first and foremost and was grappling with the idea that I was turning 50 with a self-fabricated identity of writer that if somebody said oh you're 50 what do you do and I'd say I'm a writer and they'd say well what have you published what have you produced and I would have to hang my head and say nothing and I didn't want that to be the story of my life and the gentleman that I collaborated on the website with Michael, I said to him, I'm really struggling with this. And you know how those, those really deep friends can give you a good perspective. He said, Jim, you're not a writer, you're an inventor. And I went, well, that's a cool new identity for me. And then, you know, we ended up inventing a website, inventing a perspective on a very serious subject. We've moved outside. We've got cicadas in the background here at White Pines. It's, it's a beautiful mid-August day. Walk me through how, when you were as the uh, managing editor at Nuvo, and you're kind of realizing that maybe there's something next for you. Kind of, kind of step me back to that moment and, and think about that. And, and how did you get from there to here? Sure. The, the work I was doing at Nuvo, the, the weekly publication and, of course, the website, had a lot of content about climate change, living green. We had special issues. We had a lot of content. Probably a week didn't go by where there wasn't something about uh, climate change or environmental action. And then along came yet another publication, publisher Kevin McKinney, came along with this idea. There was a monthly statewide magazine called Indiana Living Green that was up for sale, and he bought that. And so for me, it was kind of this dream come true because not only would I have a weekly publication to tell all the great stories, but always include environmental uh, content, but now we had a 
monthly publication that didn't have to cover anything else but. So it was really, you know, it was really a wonderful next step for Kevin McKinney to take. And he basically handed that to me and said, you're, you're the editor of this publication, uh, go forth and prosper. So we started telling stories from around the state of people taking action on climate change, people being good stewards of the environment. Um, the problem was is even as these increased tools were available to me to talk about and write about and assign stories about the climate crisis, it was dawning on me just how much of a crisis it was. And so the old saying, you have an itch, you have to scratch. I was scratching that itch, but the itch just got worse and worse uh, as I was going along. So it was the training with the Climate Reality Project in 2012 that gave me a whole new set of tools. And that's the organization that grew out of the uh, a release of the film Inconvenient Truth. Mr. Gore, who actually had been working on that slideshow way back in the early 90s, he used to do essentially Inconvenient Truth on a chalkboard. I, I have a, a friend who witnessed that in Nashville, Tennessee in the early 90s. And it grown into a slideshow that he showed to people and then it grew into the movie. Then that grew into an organization that now has trained 20,000 people from around the world to basically deliver that slideshow to their community. So it's really, really creating a grassroots education community. I took that training and, you know, I assume that when weavers go to a weaving conference <laughs> and the conference of people who don't wear hats all show up together and the conference of people who twiddle their thumbs, uh, you go to a conference of like-minded people and it is time to celebrate and push yourself even further. So I had an extraordinary time, made some, made some great friends and then returned to the work that I was doing, which had felt like it was enough, but there was still that nagging sense of, I need to do more. I need to do this 100% of the time. So I started doing these presentations. And the first one I did was in my living room with a bunch of friends. And we both, it wasn't so much a presentation as it was, look at this slide, look at this horrific flood in Bombay, or you know, whatever it was, along with a lot of science too. So that was an interesting uh, way to get acclimated to it. But the first public presentation I did was at the Harrison Center. I think it was a, a food con. It was a food-related event. And they gave me a room, and I set up my projector, and I sat down. I'd never done a PowerPoint before this experience. I sat actually in the audience, and there were about 12 or 15 people there. And I just started clicking through the PowerPoint and not talking because I felt like the PowerPoint had words <laughs> and the pictures were obvious enough. What was I going to talk for? I mean, it really was this completely supremely moment of disorientation and discomfort and downright feeling stupid about what I was doing. And I remember that night it actually started to rain and you know, it's my commitment to keep my carbon footprint low, so I rode my bike there, and, and I had to load up this big projector and my computer, and it started to rain, so I had to bag it all up, and I remember riding home that night thinking, what am I doing? This is not going to work. But the other thing I remember about leaving that venue was I had a friend with me, 
and he actually rode right alongside me in the rain in the dark and I was able to actually talk to a dear friend about just how awkward and insecure I felt about the experience. And I think there's a lot of really nice keys in there, you know, to this whole thing. If, if any of your listeners embark on this journey to communicate on climate or any social justice issue that is dear to their heart, it's really important to have a friend with you. It's, it, it's fundamentally important to not feel like you're alone. And the second point being, yeah, it was a really awkward, horrible experience, but I learned. I learned to, to deliver that slideshow. I learned how to incorporate my own photos into it. And over the six to eight months ensuing from that experience, I probably did two to three dozen presentations, getting more comfortable each time. But the pivotal presentation that I did was at a elementary school, downtown Indianapolis, CFI2. And I'd been invited, I don't even remember the circumstances, but somebody invited me to interact with the elementary school students. So 10, 11, 12. Now I had been 10 to 12 years old in the past when I was a human child. And so I remembered that sort of. And then uh, I had taught school for a while in the 90s to K through eight population and I had had children, so they weren't alien beings, but I really did not know what on earth I was going to do with these young kids. I knew I wasn't gonna scare them with all the photos of the horrific flooding and the wildfires and the, the uh, precipitously melting glaciers and all that. But I did put greenhouse gas emissions 101. I did some science, how, this, how the, the planet was gradually warming, but, but increasingly so in the past 10 to 20 years. I did all that stuff because they needed some scientists, what the teacher wanted. And I started this presentation and lo and behold, some kid in the back jumped up and actually stepped into the space of the slideshow and did a presentation on the greenhouse gas emission slides himself. And I went, okay, so this is how this is gonna go. This is gonna be just like my first public presentation, except this time I can intentionally put other people in my place to actually speak about it. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, I, I showed the slides, but they were more interactive and, and, and lots of questions. And the kids were talking to me about the green roof that they'd proposed to put on the school. They talked about their recycling and their composting, and they wanted chickens, and they rode their bikes to school. And I walked out of that school, and I just, I had that moment of epiphany that I had only read about in books or seen in, in visual narratives. Like that moment where you go, okay, so this is it. This is the unexpected thing that I now want to do until the end of my time here. And that was that, was that rock solid feeling. I, I had I'd parked my bike uh, at the school next to the kids' bikes. I, I unlocked it. I started riding away and I just stopped and I, and I looked the other day if I had a picture of that day because I thought, I think that I did take a photo but it's on some forgotten computer somewhere because it was truly that moment of, of conversion to the commitment to talking about the climate crisis with kids. And, and I know that might sound odd to, to you all listening, but, but for me to talk to kids about this was about solutions. And it was about 
not breaking habits, because that's the difficulty with, with us grown-ups, is we're habituated to our diet and our energy and our transportation behaviors. It's really hard to change. But kids, they're, they're young and they're, and they're pliable that way. And, and so that's, that's really kind of, I was off and running at that point. I did a couple more presentations in schools. But because I had found that clarity, that clarity of what I wanted to do, I could now openly talk about that to a couple of key people, some key friends. One of them was John Gibson, who had founded Earth Charter Indiana back in 2001. And so I'd already been talking to John. In fact, I knew John back in the 1980s. He was a neighborhood activist. He ended up running for mayor at one point. And so John and I were friends. He was friends with my mother-in-law, so I'd known John. And so I was beginning to learn about Earth Charter Indiana. And what the people at Earth Charter Indiana had come to simultaneously, in a parallel fashion, was the power of children to convey the story of climate change and the need for solutions in a state where the only people that were talking about it were probably the ragtag environmentalists, you know, the tree huggers, of which I am one, but I, even I wasn't talking about it except in these circumstances of the, of the publications that I, was, that I was running. John really was the guy. It, it, it was, it was uh, a coffee that we were having and there was a project they were working on and I was trying to figure out, could I actually help with this project? I, I, I have two publications under my purview. I'm now doing these volunteer presentations around the community. Is there any way that I could find even more time to help out Earth Charter Indiana with one of these projects. And he turned to me in the middle of this meeting and he said, Jim, would you quit your job to do this? And John has done that to a lot of people over time. John would be a great subject for Hopeful Hoosier. He, he was a Hopeful Hoosier before you had this idea to do this, Andy. And, and uh, I know I'm not alone. I'm not the only person that John actually asked a question to that changed their life. And I said yes. And I said yes from the gut. I didn't say yes from the head. I didn't go through, whoa, but I have, I've got kids in college. And, you know, it's like, uh, da, 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 da. I didn't do that. I just said yes because that's where I was at that moment. So there was another friend of mine, Charlie Sutphin, who we'd been dear friends for a couple decades. And what brought us together was Nuvo and writing and editing and, and basketball and some other, some other fun things we did together. And he himself was just beginning to get into the, uh, the activity of contributing money to organizations that were thinking about the environment. And it was just dawning on Charlie, if, if I may be so bold as to speak for him, that he was beginning to understand that climate change was happening and it was a growing threat to our children and our grandchildren. And so between John and Charlie, there was enough uh, revenue brought into the 501c3 Earth Charter Indiana bank account so that I could fathom leaping from my gainful employment at Nuvo and Indiana Living Green to running Earth Charter Indiana. The tricky part of that was leaving a job that I had been doing for a long time, about 1994 to 2013. So we're talking almost 20 years, either as a, as a regular freelancer, an arts editor, or managing editor. And the really tricky part was going to 
see Kevin McKinney, my friend and my boss, and go to him and, and tell him that I had found this opportunity. And it was one of the most remarkable conversations I've ever had in my life. You know, it was, it was easy with my wife and kids. They were like, go for it. Because they'd been hearing me yak about climate change for years, right? <laughs> like, go for it. Here's your, how can you not? And my own daughter had made a similar jump, like just two years before me, from education to uh, conflict resolution and racial justice. And she made a similar jump in, I'm just going to do this because that's where my heart is. So I had my, I had, uh, you know, friends that had gone before me in making a jump. I had my own daughter who had done it and had the support of the rest of my family. So I went to see Kevin and that was a very, very hard morning. I went there and I walked in and I, and I just flat out told him. And I'll never forget his reaction. He was, he, he, he looked at me and he said, Jim, the Earth Charter is the most amazing document. He, he said, this isn't sad, this is, this is a perfect fit. He basically just said, you're doing the right thing. And what I always love about that moment is, is Kevin, as the boss, as the publisher, he thought about me first and not him first. And that's something I question about myself from time to time. Am, am I really thinking about other people first or am I thinking about me first? And that's, that's a thorny thicket of... of uh, a question there but he truly thought about me first in that and then the, the decision was made and I had a, 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 a I think it was a two-month transition period by six years ago mid-August I was having my last days at Nuvo ready to start at Earth Charter Indiana on September 1st 2013 tell us about the mission of Earth Charter Indiana and and what you hope to accomplish Earth Charter Indiana is an organization based on the Earth Charter, which is a, a beautiful document written by hundreds of people from dozens of countries in the late 1990s. It was released around the year 2000, maybe early 2001. And it basically says, within the context of the climate crisis, because they were talking about it as a crisis almost 20 years ago, you can't solve climate change without solving racism, poverty, and a lack of democratic transparency. So it's a, it's, a, it's a marvelous document that actually connects the dots between all those things. Now, yes, it makes things more complicated, but the truth is, and we're coming to it more and more because climate change is now turning into, climate action is now turning into climate justice action, and issues around equity and racial justice are just woven into the problem now because they're all connected. But the Earth Charter lays it out in such a way that it's just Really, really a blueprint for for moving toward a peaceful, just, and sustainable world to live in. And that's available online if somebody yes. would like to research. Absolutely, Earth Charter. Earth Charter. So John Gibson and Jerry King uh, started Earth Charter Indiana, and it was to support and utilize and promote the the, the values of the Earth Charter. And but though there were four interlocking issues. Especially at that time, there wasn't many actions or activists regarding climate change. So really the focus was on educating about the climate crisis. And so that was, that was really as I came into the uh, organization, I didn't have to convince anyone that, that my leading edge mission was, was also theirs at the same time. Tell me about some of the project work that you actually contribute here to the state with the organization. 
I think the most exciting uh, project that we're working on is uh, modeled on a Eugene, Oregon project. Our Children's Trust worked with kids in Eugene, Oregon, and they passed the first climate recovery resolution in 2014. Actually, it wasn't a resolution, it was an ordinance. And a you know, quick primer for everyone, a resolution is a promise, an ordinance is law. But the, but the idea was for kids to approach a mayor or a city council member as a coach and say, will you coach us? We've got this concern that's climate change. We want our city to do something about it, but we also want to know what you do, how you operate, what's the power structure, who do we talk to? So kids learn how to sort of power map and they put their climate science into play. And so we thought that was a pretty cool idea. I mean, I certainly thought it was a great idea uh, as per what I said about kids being not quite so habituated to the way of life. And also, let's face it, this is the planet they are going to inherit. And according to scientists, it's going to be a terribly chaotic and polluted planet on its current trajectory. And so I thought, well, this is, this is what we've been looking for. This is our dream come true. So we got started on that, and we have now, as of June of 2019, we have six cities in Indiana that have passed youth-led climate resolutions. In some cities, like Carmel, for example, we were kind of a catalyst in, in, in bringing it up, but then a lot of people in Carmel sort of took that and run with it. In Indianapolis, uh, Earth Charter was, was ground level the whole time because I lived there in Indianapolis. Lawrence just kind of came up out of the blue in a sense. The mayor of Lawrence heard about what some of his students who actually are in Indianapolis, what some of those students had done in Indianapolis. He said, I want to talk to those kids. So the mayor of, of Lawrence, Steve Collier, encouraged his kids to do a similar climate resolution as well. That was a really wonderful thing for an elected official to do, and he's a Republican. So even more kudos to him for that. And then uh, just in the past few months, we passed three more. South Bend, my hometown, Goshen, and Bloomington. And I have to say, I'm pretty excited that Bloomington was last, because if Bloomington had been first, it would be easier to discard. But the first town was Carmel, which is a completely Republican town. And then came Indianapolis with a majority of votes. So that means the majority of Republican city county councilors voted for it. So my experience is very different from what you hear in the media. My experience is on a municipal level, Democrats and Republicans work together to listen to children. So, so we have these youth-led climate resolution projects in, in cities that we're working in. And we have a couple more sort of teed up. Kids are meeting with their mayors on a regular basis now in a handful of cities. And also what's happening is there's a young woman named Greta, a 16-year-old girl from Sweden, I think, who is starting to make a lot of waves in, in the youth community and her Instagram feed is extraordinary. And she's been encouraging kids to strike from school on Fridays. And they're doing that by the tens of thousands every Friday all over the world. There's a heightened uh, attention paid to this from young people. You know, we're continuing that project. The other thing that we do is as we got to know these mayors, we start to go, this, this rocks. Mayors rock. I don't care what party they're from. If they 
are starting to deal with climate impacts. And why would they not? They're having 100-year floods every two years. They're having just, they're just seeing a lot of extreme weather storms and the infrastructure is suffering. And potholes are a climate change issue with the freeze-thaw cycle uh, so severe now. So we started working directly with mayors. And so we've been doing an annual summit of mayors. We bring together mayors, city engineers, city planners, people that work on, on flood issues. And we bring them together, but we also tell the mayor, bring your faith leader, bring your business leader, bring your youth leader. So it's not uh, you know, just the typical gathering of, and I love those gatherings of the typical environmentalists in the state, but it's not your typical gathering of them because there's all sorts of people there. And I think it creates a more, a more interesting or more diverse community of people united around the issue. The other thing that uh, we do that I love is just the sweat equity in a sense of being in schools. We're in schools a lot. And what we're doing is we're encouraging sustainability projects that teach the idea of a circular economy through systems thinking and problem-based learning initiatives like a zero-waste cafeteria. So we have a couple of schools working on trying to reduce the amount of waste in their school cafeteria. That means they're capturing the plastic and recycling it, they're capturing the food and delivering it to a, a, com a professional composter because you can't really compost food waste on site. There's too much food waste. And I don't know if we'll achieve victory there, but in a couple of schools in IPS, Indianapolis Public Schools, we're getting close. But the important thing is kids are seeing how systems work. If you have a broken system, you can't just fix one part of it. You have to fix the whole thing, which saying this out loud makes me think about the Earth Charter itself, saying you have to approach all these uh, really extraordinary challenges to find the interconnections to solve the, the, the problem of the climate crisis. So we do a lot of work in schools and that's fun and, and we do camps. We call them climate camps and we work with kids 7 to 17 and again the younger kids we're not going to traumatize them with the climate crisis but honestly more and more kids are coming to us they're already traumatized they can't sleep at night they're worried about monarch butterflies and deforestation and what's great is we've got stuff for them to do. Like, we're not here to make them more afraid. We're here to give them something to do. And that's the best thing you can do for anybody, no matter what their age is, is listen to them, listen to their concerns, and give them some comfort in especially uh, an idea for a project that actually takes a bite out of carbon or waste. So we've got advocacy. You've got youth education on the climate. You have camping and sort of outdoor experiences. Am I missing anything? Well, I think what's really interesting about our organization, and that goes to my background, because I, I uh, was a playwright for 10 to 15 years. And, and so my background is the arts. I was uh, played trombone in high school, and you know, it, it, the arts kind of get left behind in some of these STEM activities and science-oriented activities and just thinking about the climate crisis. It turns out the arts are integral to it. And so I think we're probably the only organization in youth that combines science, art, and advocacy all together. When you think of the challenges that are of main concern here in the state of Indiana regarding our environment, what, what really comes to mind and, and what do you think are the 
the, the urgent issues. Well, what's happening now is the flooding. And it's the flooding that is waking up people that either didn't think it was here yet or didn't think climate change was happening at all. The, the, the floods are devastating and they're all over the state. Northern Indiana, where I'm from, South Bend had a 500 year flood. In other words, a, a flood level that would only statistically happen every, every 500 years. And Goshen have the same. There are cities, small towns around Indiana that have had 100 year floods, two in the course of two years. So a mayor can't go to, to his or her constituent and say, oh, we're okay for another 99 years. And it's always a one out of 100 chance anyway. So to think of it in that way is a little bit of a misnomer. But, but uh, anyway, I think it's flooding. Then, of course, then the uh, infrastructure issues that come up with that. Like, what are cities doing to tackle their, their infrastructure to look out ahead over 10 or 20 years? So you're really getting a lot of engineers and, and city planners and architects and, and other highly trained people to be thinking out ahead about a problem that up until a few years ago was being ignored in Indiana. So you've, you've got the flooding, but you has, also have the, just, the, just the issue of we all have so much going on. How can we find the time, carve out the time to think about this new problem? I think we have another urgent issue in Indiana and that's the lack of civic engagement. We, we consistently rank low in a lot of vectors when it comes to civic engagement, voting. We're not great at voting. And we're not great at showing up at town council and city council meetings to, to listen to what's going on and have our say in that. So I'm, I, from the beginning, believed our projects were addressing two crises. One is the climate crisis and the other is the civics crisis. And we bring those together in a way that I think is fun and joyful. The six city council meetings where this has happened have been really fun. City council people and mayors loved watching people file in the door. Goshen, for example, one of the councilors turned to me and said, we haven't had this many people since we tackled the chicken coop ordinance, <laughs> which was hilarious. Standing room only. You know, if you're an elected official, it's very likely that you want your constituents to show up and be there, especially if they're respectful, as our kids are. They're polished, and they know what they're talking about. They know the science. We actually do handshaking workshops in our climate camps or before kids are going to go into a city, a county chamber. Kids have to be taught how to shake hands in a way that impresses adults. So, so, so what I'm hearing is, Part of the process is understanding the system that can actually make the meaningful change and learning how to operate inside of the system, not just being sort of this revolutionary radical on the outside of the system, shouting at the system. How do we work within the system to bring about positive change? Yes, and, and, that, and that's, you just described me to a T. I'm sure as an armchair quarterback, uh, over the decades of looking at injustice and climate change and everything else, I felt like I might be one of those frontline revolutionaries. But the, the truth is, for better or for worse, I'm not. I love people. I love all kinds of people. I want to work with people. I think that only if we work together can we make the changes that will actually matter. Now, another person might say, no, we have to fight, we have to battle. And history proves that person correct. 
Look at civil rights. I mean, if we'd all work together on that, I mean, we still have deeply ingrained issues regarding racial justice in our, in our community. So I'm not saying I'm even right about this. I just know that it's right for me. Where this all comes to a head, this issue that you so beautifully characterize, it's not, a, not the revolution, it's working within the system to change the system to address this issue. There's no better example than the climate strike. Kids are striking by the tens of thousands every single Friday, worldwide. And, you know, Earth Charter, Indiana, we love schools. We work in schools. We have great contact with principals and administrators and superintendents and teachers. And our premise is schools are not the problem. They're the solution. But they have to be climate literate. For example, March 15th, there was a strike. There was 200, 250 kids down at the state house. That was wonderful. It was really wonderful. But I got on my bike and I rode my bike to CFI 27, where the kids there had decided not to strike. But in fact, the eighth graders had turned the gym into a climate education festival for the other middle school kids and the elementary school kids. So over the course of that day, hundreds of kids got exposed to climate science by eighth graders. Now, to me, that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, you know. And there were games and fun projects and there were letter writing stations to the governor and the senators. And, you know, I, I can't dispute these kids in wanting to strike from school and raise the alarm because we are at that level where, where alarm must be raised. But I also think that if schools can become climate literate, in other words, talk about climate change, not just in the science class, but in the social studies class, in the English class, and math, and I mean, every, every conceivable subject could pertain to climate change. And then we have kids educated on how to think in systems and how to solve problems. And that, to me, is a way to get more people more quickly ready to deal with the impacts of climate change. If the typical person uh, that's that's listening with us right now is is just flat out overwhelmed, they say, "Okay, it's that's great, Jim. You know, Indiana's having these record flooding, but what can I do? What difference can I make?" Yeah. What's your answer to that? Well, my answer is twofold. One is there's there are things we can all do better as humans. In fact, I'm I'm fond of. Uh, uh, promoting the idea of, of just get 80% better. And it may sound like a lot, but I feel like the environmental movement has really wanted people to be 100% better. And I don't know anybody who's that perfect. So when it comes to the big carbon emitting sectors of transportation, energy, and food, everyone can get a lot better than they are, except those that are already on the leading edge of this. A, a big story came out, uh, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change. I think I got that right. They came out with the, with the idea that, that we all need to eat a lot less meat. And in fact, uh, red, red meat, um, you know, beef and lamb are the biggest constituents of, of that problem because of all the land that has to be cleared to grow that meat and then or to either feed that meat or, or let that meat run grass-fed free. But also the, the uh, methane that comes from the, the, uh, the burps. Uh, you think about 60 or 70 billion animals in captivity on the planet. You're talking about a lot of methane along with uh, a lot of other environmental problems. So, so people eating a lot less meat is, is, is certainly one way. I would say transportation is my personal pet peeve. You know, I, 
for years have ridden my bike, decades really, and, and I sit at a light on my bike and I see all these people um, uh, driving by themselves up and down Meridian Street or wherever going to work. Surely they could figure out how to, how to share a car. Maybe three people share a car, four people share a car. And, and then of course when it comes to energy, uh, transitioning to renewable energy is, is the best idea, but not everybody's ready for that and just, and just uh, having some uh, control over your thermostat. I think you raise a good point. On the awareness concern of climate issues, you know, you're probably on approaching one extreme. What about the person that is sort of on the other extreme and maybe isn't quite ready to say climate change, climate crisis, that kind of thing? What advice would you have for them to say about just recognizing that perhaps we don't have to leave as deep footprints wherever we go on the world? Yeah, I would just say ditto. That was a great question and the way you worded it. I am speaking to you in this way because you are the Hopeful Hoosier podcast and I'm just flat out using the terminology that I'm comfortable doing. But the truth is most, uh, there are many people who aren't comfortable with that and I can have a conversation about this issue without using the climate word if possible. You know, it, it really is about recognizing that we have an issue. There's a film coming out, Planet of the Humans. I, I don't know much about it. I don't know if I'm gonna like it, but it's basically saying the problem is people and consumerism and yeah, that's, that's a big issue, you know? Consumer, we're buying stuff and we're throwing it away or we're not recycling it properly or whatever. There, there are these ramps to the proverbial highway of change and one of them is plastic. Uh, we've had an initiative called Straw Bale for, for a couple years. I built a straw bale out of 9,000 disposed plastic straws and that was a labor of hate, not a labor of love. And I use that instruction with kids. Something as simple as not using a straw or refusing a straw. Single-use plastic is a huge issue now internationally because of all the plastic in the oceans. So I would say to somebody who's maybe not quite ready to, to grasp the, the climate crisis as, as an issue, grasp something that really bugs you. If we could capture it, even put it in a different way. If we could just stop wasting food, we waste 43% of the food that we grow and produce. If we could just stop doing that, we'd never have to talk about climate change, about that particular subject. We'd just stop wasting food and that would be great for people that are struggling with hunger and that would be great to keep the food waste out of the landfills and thus the methane being released from the rotting food, we could, take a, we could take a bite, so to speak, out of, out of the climate crisis by simply not wasting food. Now, someone who's of, a, of a, a mindset where they don't believe in the climate crisis, that's cool because I bet you they believe in not wasting things. So that's a really sort of pivotal way to, to, to talk to people or not to talk to people, but to present, you know, different options to them about what they would like to do to tackle uh, the issue. The White Pine Wilderness Academy, one of their ethics is leave no trace. That's a pretty great thing to do, not that hard to do, but it's an ethic that was very much a part of my grandparents' generation. And that's been just bulldozed, literally and figuratively, 
by this idea, by being pummeled by advertising and told that we need to buy stuff to feel good about ourselves. And then what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with it? Well, even recycling is a challenge now, right? I mean, even before the, uh, China did a ban on it, think about a terrible system where you're Thing that maybe you didn't really even need to use in the first place because you could have bought in bulk at the at the co-op or whatever is now going to be transported on a uh, ship and go halfway around the world to be processed in a factory that is creating pollution for people in China and many other countries. So, so just sort of it, it, it's hard to not have your head explode when you start thinking about this stuff. So, Jim, this this concept of of addressing climate crisis, climate change, et cetera, here in Indiana, bringing it to the heartland, probably doesn't come without its fair share of challenges. What do you think are the biggest challenges that, that you've faced so far, and how did you overcome them? I think a huge challenge to this issue is just habit. You know, we've gotten a lot of messages over the years that everything was okay when it came to how we live, um, how we drive, how we eat, how we heat and cool our homes. So this idea that we have to struggle with this idea of okay. And everywhere I look, people are struggling with the issue of privilege. So these go hand in hand as we start to think about our, our footprint, right? But the other thing that we lost was our hold on our own community and our civics system. And so I believe that, that we, have, we have allowed our government system to be, if not co-opted, certainly influenced by money. Big money seems to be what's generating decision-making. What we're finding is the climate crisis is waking people up to both those components and tackling those challenges and many more challenges because it's our communities that are being impacted by climate change and our food systems and our water and our infrastructure is suffering as a result of extreme weather, which scientists tell us is only going to increase. The physics of climate change is that we are basically locked into warming for the next 10 to 15 years. The scientists we work with at Purdue, the Purdue Climate Change Research Center, we, are, we have enough climate pollution, greenhouse gas pollution in the atmosphere that takes long enough to process and become a heat trapping gas that short of some weird geoengineering thing or scrubbing the carbon out of the atmosphere, which we cannot do at scale at this point, we are locked into warming. And I'm sorry that that's a reality, but it is. And it's all the more reason that we pay attention to it today instead of later. And that's the third challenge, Andy. The third challenge is we are accustomed to only paying attention to things in the immediate. And boy, has our culture really taken that to a whole new level. We are immediately looking at our phones. We're immediately responding to someone in email. We're just in this immediate realm. And it's so hard to just stop and pause and think about what's coming. And what's coming is increased extreme weather and thus chaos, and perhaps social unrest and unraveling. So we have to get out of this, this mindset of the moment and recognize that we have to work together, neighbors, 
across party lines, you name it, we have to work together to become more resilient in the face of climate crisis. Jim, is this is sort of the, I, I, I don't want to say because we're, we're close in age, but it's sort of the back nine of life for you, right? This is your, your third act, so to speak, probably, uh, in, all, in all reality. What do you hope is the legacy that you create in this third act? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm 34. I just look old. <laughs> Sometimes I feel 34, right? I wish for all your listeners what happened to me around whatever issue they hold dear. This is about giving back. I've had so much in my life given to me by being alive in Indiana in the United States of America in this time and place. I've had so much given to me. It is time to give back. And the third act for myself, I'm 61, is I will spend all the remaining years of my life lowering that carbon footprint, being a source of, of comfort and ideas for action among all my peers and also especially young people, because they are coming to us. They're headed our way, whether we like it or not. Young people are getting scared and they're gonna be angry. And they deserve, they deserve to be angry because we were asleep at the wheel for at least one and a half generations. And so it's time to support these kids. And maybe we can, what we can do is we can take that anger and we can acknowledge it and then we can help these young kids find ways to translate that anger into action. So what I'm hearing is, more than anything, it, at the individual level, not at the organizational level or the, the uh, global level, but at the individual level, it's a question of how selfish will someone be. Yeah. yeah. Is that really it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I understand people are worried about their stock portfolio and you know I understand and, and they've been taught by a society that they're going to build up this big nest egg and they're going to retire and then they're going to travel well how's that working out for a lot of people not so well you know some people work so darn hard that by the time it's time to retire they're sick because they're so stressed out or other people that are juggling two or three jobs at once there's no retirement plan there I think that in my darker moments I feel like the United States of America is the most selfish place ever. And, and we've been taught to think differently about that, that we're a generous and a giving community, uh, country, etc. But when you think about the fact that it would take the equivalent of about three to three and a half, maybe even four planet Earths to support a person's lifestyle in the United States of America. When you think about 25% of the world's energy is used by people in the United States of America, we're only 4% of the population. There is, it's, it's hard to push away this idea of selfishness. And I think that with all the challenges that we're having, with, with mass shootings and, I mean, geez, it, it just seems like things are unraveling, right? I think the response to that is to, to fight against the selfishness and give and step into that space of being open-hearted and giving. Because, because the tendency in the human nature uh, response is to close up and, and, and be scared and, 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 and flex our fists. But 
I, I don't see that leading anywhere, but even more unrest and unraveling. And so the listener that's sitting in Rocky Ripple, Indiana, right now where we are, if they think they're throwing away something into a trash receptacle, which is great and should, really that may not be going in their backyard, but it's going in somebody's backyard. Is that what I'm hearing? I, I, what we try and teach the kids in our climate camps is there is no such place as a way. So if you don't use something in the first place, a container, a receptacle, a straw, you name it, you don't have to worry about throwing it away. I take my infrastructure with me everywhere I go. I have a plate, I have a set of cutlery, I have a water bottle, I have a reusable coffee cup. I just take my infrastructure with me. People think I'm a nerd, I don't care. It's the easiest thing to do. I don't have to use somebody else's paper or plastic. I, I, just, I can just use my own. And you can walk through without leaving a trace. It, you, you can. You can sure try. And I think, you know, the struggle is this dichotomy of individual versus collective and making, making uh, well, I, I, I'm going to change things in my behavior, but I can't change things in government. There's so many different areas in between those two. For example, if you have a job, if you're in an office, I mean, corporations are leading the way. You know, if government's not leading the way in, in a lot of places, corporations are. And so you can influence your workplace. Uh, just beware falling down the recycling rabbit hole because a lot of good people have gone down with recycling and, and it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to get people to change their habits. So pick something that is, is, a, is a, a positive change for your community, your corporation or whatever, or for you rarefied few in the in the listenership, probably not your listenership, Andy, but you know, go to a city council meeting in your in your town or city and participate as a as a, a civic member of your community. Mm -hmm. Where can they find out about your organization and how they could get involved? Earthcharterindiana.org. Okay, earthcharterindiana.org. You talked earlier about your darker moments. In your darker moments, when no doubt this can be very overwhelming, where do you find your hope? Well, uh, I find my hope in a practicality, which is simply there's no choice but to do the right thing and act. There's no choice but to want to give back. Um, there is no option to give up. I'm not going to give up. As, as, as dark as I feel and, and as hopeless as I feel, I'm not going to give up. And I'm in this really privileged position that I'm not going to give up because I work with kids. And these kids know that I've got their back and I'm not going to give up. And I have a granddaughter who's five years old. So if, if all else is lost, all I have to do is think about my granddaughter. And, and, and that gives me the strength to keep going. So as a playwright yourself, how do you prevent from ending up a Tolstoy-esque ending and get to a happy ending that, that you would feel really good about before the lights dim on, on your life play? Yeah, that's a great question. I think personally speaking, that the, the, the happy ending for me will, will be that I've made so many friends and have enjoyed such community and that galvanized around the idea of climate change. 
again, others might have other issues that they find that friendship and community around and community with unexpected people. But I will submit this, that I believe that the climate crisis is the revision of the Western narrative itself. There is no one or no thing going to save us at the last minute. Arguably the last minute was a couple decades ago when we really pressed forward with fossil fuel emissions and single-use automobile uh, experience, all that stuff. The, the thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around as a, as a, as a, as a writer is really rewriting the, the structure of, it, of, of the narrative arc where there's going to be a crisis, a climax. I think this is our, our obsession with the, with the Marvel movies, right? Is we think someone's going to save us, come in at the last minute. There really isn't anything technologically available that's going to do that on the scale that's going to solve this. Now, yes, you can say, let's all be vegan. Awesome. Let's all have renewable energy instead of fossil fuels. Awesome. All these things that we can do. But I think as story consumers and storytellers, we're drunk on this idea of a happy ending. And that's one of the hardest things to do is to uproot that idea that there's going to be a happy ending to this. Um, there may be an outcome that is less critical, less suffering. Um, and there may be an outcome that actually brings us all closer together and that's a good thing. And we slow down and we don't react in the instant to our phones all the time, and we grow food and share it with each other and all those sort of utopian type things. So we may not get a happy ending, but maybe we can get a softer landing. It'd be nice to have a softer landing. It would be nice to slow down uh, the, the uh, impacts of climate change so we would have time to figure out what's a better, more sustainable way for us to be on this planet. If you wanted to sum up for our listener in one, two sentences, the key takeaways that you would hope they take away from our discussion today, what, what would they be? Well, it's been a great discussion and a wide-ranging discussion, even though some listeners might think I'm obsessed with climate change. So that's one thing, I guess, is, yep, I'm obsessed, and I'm obsessed because I can't turn away. Uh, so find the thing you can't turn away from and make it yours. Bring your own collection of characteristics to it that if you are of a certain age you don't have to be in your mid-50s when it happened to me it could be much earlier than that in fact if you're not doing exactly what you want to do now to be that good citizen and that good steward of the planet you have to you have to find a way to do that i i hope for everybody to come to that conversion moment and bring bring everything together that they had in their life to bear on these, these projects, this next mission that a person will have. So there's that commitment to, to take away too. And uh, you know, I guess the third thing would be to just enjoy. We're listening to the, the cicadas today and, and we're outside. We're, we're enjoying uh, to being together. And you know, don't freak out and don't stress out because that's not productive. Enjoy. If you had to issue a challenge to someone, maybe not regarding so much this, but really I think the thing that, that the listener can't see that I can see is this rejuvenating passion that just literally exudes from you as you talk about 
your work and, and with the foundation and, and with uh, the kids that you're working with, what challenge would you issue to the listener today? I would challenge them to listen to their heart on this issue, think with their heart, not with their head, and for those who have children or grandchildren, listen to their children and grandchildren. And for those who don't, listen to your inner child. And if somebody asks you an important question, don't be afraid to say yes, right? <laughs> right. Could change all, yes. the, make all the difference in, in the world. In fact, here's my secret to parenting and, and educating. I, n don't ask a, I don't ever answer a question except with a question. So if somebody asks a question, turn it back to them. Eventually answer it if you have to, but it's, it's so wonderful to see people's minds work, especially kids. Awesome. I think that's what makes you a hopeful Hoosier. That's right. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Has listening to Jim's story helped you find the thing that you can't turn away from? Indiana is facing many really big issues that need someone like you to help resolve them. If you know your issue, would you quit your job to do something about it full time? Jim Poyser answered yes to that question, and it's made his third act of his life play well worth the price of admission. If you find that you're asking yourself really big questions about the meaning of life and why are you here and isn't there more than this? And if you'd like some help to get clarity on your life's purpose, I'd welcome a chance to have a conversation with you. I'll warn you, I have some really challenging questions that might just change everything. You don't have to leave a trace to make a positive difference. And making your difference is what will make you a hopeful Hoosier. Special thanks to my guest, Jim Poyser. You can learn more about Earth Charter Indiana at earthcharterindiana.org. Also, if you'd like to know more about the unique Aboriginal programs at White Pine Wilderness Academy, you can visit them on the web at whitepinewilderness.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by author, musician, speaker, and licensed therapist, the amazing Indianapolis' own George Middleton. Until next episode, stay hopeful. Together, we are creating a better and brighter future for Indiana. I'm your Hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. Thank you for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching and professional development firm. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.